This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It was a year ago this month that a 14-year-old girl on the Big Island died after exposure to fentanyl. Law enforcement has seen the number of fentanyl cases grow in the islands over the past five years. This morning, we talked to Gary Yabuta. He's the executive director of the HIDTA office, which stands for High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area. It opened in 1999 thanks to a federal grant obtained by our current city prosecutor, Steve Alm, and the late Senator Dan Inouye to deal with our methamphetamine problem. Yabuta says our communities need to know about this growing new threat of fentanyl in our community. That's a, that's a real tragedy, but it's common, unfortunately. It's common in mainland America. And, and the reason why it's so common and it's so alarming is that you have a 14-year-old child who was able to get fentanyl so easily. And that's the scary part, is just that children could get on the internet, social media sites, darknet sites, uh, while their parents are out of their bedrooms, and they can get on their computers, laptops, uh, iPads, or whatever, and they can look up these sources, and these sources are telling them, yeah, do it, do it, do it, it's fun, it's fun. They glamorize drugs like fentanyl. And children are ordering it online, and it's coming to their homes uh, you know, via UPS, FedEx, or U.S. Postal Services, just like Amazon ships products from the mainland to Hawaii. And they go right to the doorsteps. And also there's drug traffickers out there in the neighborhoods, and that's been going on for generations. And so w- what did you think when you heard about this particular case? Because I understand that uh, she actually even posted something on TikTok. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the sites where allegedly this uh, unfortunate child uh, picked up the information necessary to get that drugs to her house and in her, in her body. And and so she actually posted something, though, about that, right? I think so. I didn't see the post, and quite frankly, I, I don't want to. I just want to realize that, you know, this is just one of many through the nation, and, you know, we got to stop this. Uh, we got to stop this. We can nip this right now through education and information. And so what do you want to tell our listeners? Since this first case of this teen uh, there on the Big Island, you know, we've had other young people fall a victim to this drug. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's it's trending. It's all made by the Mexican cartels, and they are glamorizing fentanyl by making it into a appealing product. It's counterfeit fentanyl pills that are colored now, candy color, and so they're directing their their product towards our young generation. And it's coming across the border, and then it's shipped to Hawaii, again, uh, air passenger carrier or parcel delivery systems. That's how it gets here. So we have to stop this. I mean, uh, and you know, uh, we can. We can. We can say no. What's what happening in the mainland, we can turn it around and reverse it. But we've been following this for the last five years, and it's here. It's crossed our Hawaiian shores. Absolutely. There's been this concerted effort uh, by law enforcement to get the word out, to train our first responders, what to look for, uh, and to just raise the awareness of, of families across the state. Right. You know, the, uh, fentanyl is a very dangerous, dangerous substance. And there's a lot of myths about how dangerous it is. And there's been a lot of order overreactions, you know, uh, law enforcement suiting up in literally spacesuits to deal with uh, a fentanyl recovery at a crime scene. And there's been some information that a few officers, law enforcement officers in the mainland have actually been influenced by fentanyl exposure. And it's debatable. However, there's no concrete evidence on how dangerous fentanyl exposure is. So we have to be cautious, but we can't be overcautious. You know, we had that anthrax uh, experience after 9-11, and now we have fentanyl, and we have to get more information from our scientists on how dangerous it is. Is there long-term effects or so forth? So I'm on the belief that we have to side on the error of caution, and we have to be very, very cautious. But again, we can't be paranoid. 
This week we had a court hearing for someone who supplied, uh, supposedly supplied drugs to someone who died of an overdose. Right. You know, and, and we're seeing now more of these cases where and, you're tracking it back. Yeah, and this isn't nothing uh, exceptionally new. In the 1980s, a promising basketball player by the name of Lynn Bias right before he was going to go to the Boston Celtics as the first one draft, draft pick, died from an overdose. It wasn't fentanyl, I believe it was cocaine. And uh, they came out, lawmakers came out with the Lynn Bias Law to uh, increase penalties for suppliers that sell drugs that caused an overdose death. So our biggest tool right now is the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, U.S. Attorney Claire Connors, who's doing an absolutely fantastic job. She's aggressive, and she's making sure that these fentanyl cases go federally, and that's our biggest impact. Can you share anything else about maybe the most recent cases or just the numbers that we're seeing? Yeah, I can tell you in the last two weeks we had uh, two overdose exposures, well, two overdose cases where the victims uh, survived and one of which is because a person very close in that uh, area of the victim had Narcan, was able to revive that particular victim. Well, unfortunately, we had one overdose death that we believe is fentanyl related. And you're still waiting on verification on that? Yeah, and that takes time. That takes a, a, you know, a, a topsy report, a toxicology a conclusion, and they have to outsource the, the specimen to the mainland to a laboratory. Are we seeing this in one particular county? No, um, it's happening <laughs> statewide. And in fact, anecdotally, the Big Island is probably being impacted the most, and that's very rural. It's as rural as you can get. And so we have to be cognizant everywhere. And also, we have to be cognizant that there's people getting their old opioid prescription pills out of their medicine cabinets and are overdosing as well. So it's not just illicit fentanyl, it's also opioids, oxycodones that people are getting from old prescriptions from doctors, and that's happening too. Along with, because doctors are no longer prescribing opioids for pain uh, relief, now you have a whole population of people that need a replacement and they're going to the black market, and those are the counterfeit fentanyl pills. You know, it, it's just amazing the stories that you hear about uh, drugs, you know, trying to be smuggled in. I think there was something recently this week where uh, someone in a wheelchair tried to stuff drugs in the wheels, and, and the, the folks at the airport noticed that, you know, the wheels weren't turning, and, and then they discovered all these drugs, yeah. you know, inside the wheelchair. Right. Can you imagine what's coming through undetected? The cartels and drug traffickers are very, very clever. They know that they get their product over across the border and into other areas throughout the nation, including Hawaii, they're gonna make a huge profit. And that's the bottom line, it's all about profit. Anything else that you wanna emphasize or underscore to our listeners? Yeah, and again, we can nip this, we can, we can overcome the fentanyl uh, epidemic that uh, is nationwide. And we have to do that through education. And we, in my opinion, uh, we, all have to, we all have to become role models. Right now, you're a role model. I'm a role model. You can't rely on parents because there's a lot of parents that were like my parents. They're uneducated. My parents were Japanese Americans. They were interned during camp. They came out with nothing. They were laborers. And so they couldn't tell me and my brother, don't do drugs. And we have a lot of parents like that too. They're, hard-working people, but they don't have time to educate themselves about drugs like fentanyl and explain it to their children, so everybody has to step up to the plate. We've had teachers, and our teachers are our best role models, but yeah. everybody has to be. So where do, we, where do we go for good information? You can always contact the Hawaii High Intensity Drug Traffic, Trafficking Area, Department of Health, their dashboard. There's a lot of great organizations out there. The Hawaii Health Harm Reduction Center, we're all ready to step up to the plate and provide whatever information. We'll go to the public, we'll go to the audience, neighborhood crime watches, whatever. Uh, our voices will be heard. And it's a multidisciplinary approach. It's not just law enforcement or, or drug prevention or drug treatment. It's a team now. 
a team effort if we are to push back on the fentanyl that is being smuggled into our state and endangering our communities. We've been hearing from former Maui Police Chief Gary Yabuta, now executive director of the HIDTA, an office established in Honolulu because Hawaii is considered a high-intensity drug traffic area. It's one of 33 hotspots across the country. For links to info about the dangers of fentanyl, check the conversation with uh, webpage uh, on our web, uh, website later today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering Master of Science programs including finance, information systems, marketing, and more. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. Hey, it's Michael Barbaro, co-host of The Daily. I'm thrilled to be on Hawaii Public Radio for a weekly look into the world's biggest stories. Join me Monday through Thursday at 1.30, starting November 21st, here on HPR One. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. During this election month, HBR continues to look back at some voices from Hawaii's past, part of our continuing project with the University of Hawaii at Manoa's Center for Oral History. And joining us today in the studio is Colin Moore, director of the Public Policy Center. Happy to be here. <laughs> yes. You're probably election album. We're going to do something a little different today. Um, we're going to listen to a segment with um, a UH Ethnic Studies professor, Tai Kavika Tengen. It's a clip with the thoughts of three prominent Republicans about the image, party politics, and power here in Hawaii. Uh, you know, as we know, when it comes to political affiliations, Hawaii has been dominated by the Democratic Party since the 1954 elections. Take a listen. Hiram Fong, the first Asian-American U.S. Senator, served from 1959 until 1977. Known as a moderate who supported civil rights legislation and immigration reform, he remains the only Republican ever elected to the Senate from Hawaii. In this clip, recorded more than a decade after he retired, Fong explains why the structure of Hawaii's economy makes it difficult for Republicans to win elections. You know, you've got a very peculiar state here. There's no state like Hawaii. Here you have one big city. The big city is always liberal. In the other states you have the outlying districts. The farmers were considered conservative. Here our farmers are agribusiness. They have the right of collective bargaining. They unionize. They're democratic. Then now you have the hotels that are coming up, all unionized. You see the problem here? This is the problem of Hawaii. If they break up the plantations, give each person a plot to farm, it may be a little different, it may change a few things. But as long as you have unions in these various agribusiness, you're going to find that it's difficult for a Republican. Appointed by Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1957, William Quinn served as Hawaii's last territorial governor. Following statehood two years later, he ran as a Republican to become the first elected governor. In this 1988 interview with political analyst Dan Tuttle, Quinn explains why Hawaii's contemporary Democratic Party reminds him of the Republicans of an earlier era. Why have the Democrats been so lax about their party organization? I think it's a repeat almost exactly of what the Republicans did after 50 years in office, what the Democrats are doing after 35 years in office. And that is, as soon as the people get in power, they want to hold on to that power. They don't want to build anything. They don't want to pass anything along. They've got theirs. And that's been the case. The Democrats have become fat and happy in, in, uh, in office, and they don't want to see that change. And they're not interested in building a political party if the individuals are. And you, you look at some of the individuals. They're there now, and they were there then. Then they were young, uh, vigorous, idealistic guys. And now they're cigar-smoking people sitting back and saying, I've got mine. 
Wadsworth Yee spent 16 years in the state Senate, serving as the Republican leader for much of that time. In this interview, conducted nearly a decade after he lost his seat to Neil Abercrombie, Yee reflects on his efforts to change the Republican Party's image in the 1970s. During that time, we tried to um, change the image of a Republican candidate because during all my years of running, it's been that the oh, Republican Party is the party of the rich, party of the big five, etc. So we tried to change that image by letting people know that, look, we're not the party of the rich, we're not the party of the big five, but uh, somehow uh, it just never caught on, and I don't know why, you know. Um, you can get a, a rich Democrat, uh, a multimillionaire Democrat run for office, people don't think anything about it, but when you get a rich uh, multi, multi-millionaire Republican run for office, immediately the, the average person, oh, rich Republicans, to heck with them. And it's an image uh, we try to overcome, but even till today we can't, because uh, if you look in local politics here, there, there are more rich Democrats than rich Republicans. We've been listening to Hiram Fong, William Quinn, and Wadsworth Yee with UH Ethnic Studies Professor Ty Kavika-Tangan. Colin Moore is here uh, with us in the studio to kind of break this all down and put it in perspective. So what are your thoughts on this? Well, it's uh, you know, we, we put together this segment because we thought it would be so interesting to hear these Republican voices from the past, from three of the most prominent Republicans ever in Hawaii. And I think some of this will sound relatively familiar. I mean, Hiram Fong talks about why the dominance of the unions explains the de- dominance of the Democratic Party here in Hawaii. And I don't think that's really changed. If you've looked at the elections we just saw, uh, the unions, particularly the public sector unions, played an, an enormous role um, in electing certain candidates. Um, you know, if you, you think about what uh, Governor William Quinn said, I think this holds true for a lot of people, um, Democrats even, who are frustrated with the mainstream of the Hawaii Democratic Party. I think this is why you've seen, particularly on the West Side, uh, uh, more working class areas actually breaking to the Republican Party um, because they have this sense that the that the centrist Democrats or the establishment Democrats aren't really fighting for them, uh, fighting for them anymore. Um, and then you know Wadsworth Yee, I think illustrates the important historical reason why so much of this is true, that even today there is this association with the wealthy, with the big five, with plantation agriculture among so many people about the Republican Party. But one thing I would add to that is now there's another challenge Republicans in Hawaii have to confront, which is that the mainland Republican Party really has become a deeply conservative party uh, dominated by Trump. And Republicans in Hawaii have always succeeded when they focused on intensely local issues and tried to carve out a, a separate brand for themselves. But that's become increasingly difficult. Right. So it's this branding thing. It's the image, right? It's like who wants to be a Republican, you know? And 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 folks are are at least the candidates that we talked to said, oh well, I'm a moderate. Right. You know, they don't want to. Uh, there was a, the Trump factor. You know, to be are you associated with kind of the extreme group? You know. And you know, and a lot of the most successful ones. Uh, managed to pull that off. I mean, I think that coming out of this recent election, um, Republicans did very well, right? I mean, by Hawaii standards, still Democrats have the overwhelming majority of the House and Senate, but they picked up a seat in the Senate going from one to two, and they picked up two seats in the House going from four to six. Um, So we did see a little progress among those Republicans. And a lot of this was, they were able to carve out a separate brand in part because really what they were focusing on were those more local issues, trying to distance themselves a little bit from uh, the ideological conservatives on, on the mainland. And you know, in some cases, they were very successful. Well, it was interesting, too. You know, uh, I had an opportunity to uh, kind of be a fly on the wall at a, at a, a rally for uh, Duke Iona. Uh, and I was looking for some familiar faces, you know, in the audience. And I didn't really see a lot of the, you know, the moderate Republicans, you know, that you would think would would turn out to kind of help their candidate. It was just pretty much he was on his own. Yeah, I mean, I think that Duke Iona had a tough time running that campaign. He raised very little money. Um, The other thing that's going on with the party even here is that it's very divided. It's divided between the the moderates that still exist to some degree, the Duke Iona, Linda Lingle moderates, and 
the the more truly conservative faction uh, that BJ Penn represented when he ran. And so this is a small party that's divided um, among itself. And I think it, it's really struggling to gain traction. But what I hope is that they, they do see some hope from the results of these 2020 or 2022 elections um, because they, they had a little bit of success emphasizing those local issues. And of course, nothing succeeds like success. So it'll be easier for them to recruit more candidates, higher quality candidates. Um, and, and I think we, we really do need them there. We need a robust two-party system. And even though they have just a few members in the legislature, I think this will allow them to produce a more robust uh, minority legislative package to push back on issues like anti-corruption and transparency. Historically, Hawaii Republicans have been really strong on those issues. Right. And I hear bail reform is another one that they, they're going to yeah continue to hammer on. Uh, but, it, you know, it's interesting, you know, because if you look as, as a game, right? You, you root for the underdog. Um, and yet, when you think back on the history of uh, the politicians that have switched parties, because there are a few of them, right? They, they, they started out as Republicans, and you know what? If I'm going to get anywhere, I've got to change parties. Uh, that's exactly right. I mean, that's why when you talk to, uh, to to folks, they'll say, well, there's a lot of, you know, Democrats in name only in, in the legislature, people who might be a little more conservative, but they don't see a political future for themselves with that R next to their name. It's, you know, the other thing I'd mention, it's why on the city council, we have a relatively ba- more conservative and balanced council because those are nonpartisan races. So you can get more conservative candidates, people like Heidi Suniyoshi um, in, on the council, um, because they don't, because these are nonpartisan races, and and people don't need to to vote for a Republican. Right, and it became nonpartisan because a couple of council members switched parties <laughs> in the middle of the stream, and and Patsy Mink didn't didn't like that. And thought exactly, it was wrong. exactly. Yeah, but so it's so it's interesting, you know, to to kind of see how, uh, I guess, the branding of of a Republican, um, you know, is going to. Uh, affect what goes on down the road. I mean, I, I know talking to, to some of the folks in the Republican Party, they were saying, well, you know, the day after the election, they brought the winners and the losers, you know, the candidates that ran because they did, um, you know, put a pretty decent number of um, folks to run in these races. They did. And that's and to build the party, that's what they need to do. It, losing the first time is no real surprise, but you gain those skills and you've got to come back and, and run the second time. And I think that's what the party is trying to do to cultivate that talent. So, gosh, so where do we where do we go from here? You know, I know they've, the, the Republicans just uh, reorganized over at the legislature. So you've got some, uh, you know, some uh, Fresh faces, you know, in in some of these key positions. Yeah, I think that I think some of those new Republicans are going to be pretty successful. They're, some of them are young, pretty dynamic. They won really hard fought races, so they're going to be getting some attention. I think we're going to see new energy among the Republicans, which is good. We need a we need two parties in our democracy. You know, and and it's curious to see. You know, you've got Val Okimoto, um, you know, also now over at the council uh, with uh, uh, Andrea Depola. Uh, and of course, she has aspirations. Uh, you know, she did run for governor, so we'll see kind of where this experience takes her. Absolutely, I think maybe she'll run for mayor. We'll see. Ah, uh, yes, yes, <laughs> that's that's the question. She says, yeah, I think she's just going to learn. As, as I saw an interview on uh, on TV about that, she's going to learn. Uh, not quite ready to to commit if she's going to run against Blangiardi, but yeah, uh, lots to watch as we uh, uh, see the Republicans kind of build their strength here in the state. But thank you so much, Colin. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, This Oral History Project is a monthly segment that we bring to you on The Conversation. It is thanks to the SHARP Initiative of the National Endowment for the Humanities through the American Council of Learned Societies and the UH Oral History Center. It's reality check time, and today we have a story from Honolulu Civil Beats' Christina Jedra. She joins us with an update on the case involving our former police chief, Louis K. Aloha. Good morning, Christina. Hi, Catherine. It's good to be here. Yes, so, you know, gosh, so he and his wife, uh, Catherine, have been behind bars for some time now after their conviction. So you got wind that he started to pay restitution. 
Right. The former chief has um, started paying his debt to the victims of his crimes. Um, so checks started going out last month to Gerard Puana, uh, of course, Catherine Kaloha's uncle, who was uh, wrongly framed for a crime he did not commit. Uh, that was the focus of the corruption scandal. Uh, and also the estate of Florence Puana, Catherine's grandmother, late grandmother, who died uh, at 100 years old in 2020. So um, it's really just a fraction of what they're owed, which is, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. But at least this is getting the ball rolling. And then what have you heard about uh, Catherine K. Aloha's share in restitution? So according to Eric Seitz, who's representing the, the Puanas in this case, um, Catherine really doesn't have any money to give at this point. So uh, Louis may actually be on the hook for for paying back restitution for both of them. Um, and that could take quite some time. He, of course, is in federal prison, but he does still receive his um, police pension. So he gets close to 10 grand a month from his pension. Um, and that I, I think will help him pay off these debts. Um, a lot of people have been asking in our comment section why that pension can't be garnished. Um, and I, if anyone has heard of the pension forfeiture law that passed, I think about a year ago, um, to take away pensions from public employees accused of uh, or convicted of corruption, um, that was passed after all of this Kaloha business happened. So it's it's not retroactive and does not apply to him. Yes, I was reading those comments, and, and it is interesting because it, it has hit a nerve uh, with with your readers, you know, who just don't mm-hmm. think this sits right, right? And they're wondering, you know, what happened to all that money, this the $250,000 that the city paid out, uh, you know, and, and why can't they pay back sooner? Right. Um, so if, to refresh people's memory, when Louis Kaloha retired um, back in 2017, the police commission granted him a severance of $250,000. Um, and the condition was if he was convicted of uh, a crime in the next several years, he'd have to pay it back. Well, a judge did order him to pay it back. But uh, last I heard, as of earlier this year, no payments have been made to that effect. So uh, they have a lot of, of debtors that they have to pay. Um, and I think it's going to be a slow journey to, to making them whole. Yeah, and this case is, you know, linked to the uh, criminal indictments of, of uh, other uh, former city officials, right? Um, the, the city's top lawyer, the, M, the managing director, mm-hmm. and one of their police Boy, commissioners. Yes. <laughs> This case has so many tentacles, it is hard to keep up. So uh, in reference to that severance payment, yes, the three former city officials that um, allegedly made that payment happen or had a hand in it um, are, are have pleaded not guilty to conspiracy charges. Um, and that case is ongoing. They're kind of squabbling over discovery issues now, but um, it, you know, it may or may not come to a trial. So I guess it just remains to be seen, you know, what Catherine K. Aloha does or, you know, I don't know if there has to be any legal action taken to uh, get the money out of the chief. He is paying. Um, it's it's come at a delay and it's different amounts than the, the judgment said. Um, but, you know, we'll see. Maybe he, he ends up paying more next month. He's supposed to be making monthly payments. Um so we'll be tracking it, and we will keep you updated um, at Civil Beat. As for Catherine, I guess you can't get blood from a stone, um, but who knows if um, once she gets out of prison in several years and if she begins to work, maybe she'll start paying people back. All right, yeah. It just so many twists and turns with this case. But thank you so much, mm-hmm. Christina. Thanks for having me. That was reporter Christina Dredda with today's Reality Check. Uh, you can read the full story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. In the new exhibition, Moe Moe A, artist Noah Harders transforms found materials into fantastical works. On view now, honolulumuseum.org. 
Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Linda Yael Schiller, author of Modern Dreamwork and PTS Dreams. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about complex dreams and nightmares to work through difficult issues. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, investing in new ships, cranes, and terminal improvements to serve the needs of Hawaii communities for generations to come. Matson.com. November happens to be Homeless Awareness Month, and a group from Finland who are leaders working in the field are in Honolulu for a conference on homelessness and housing solutions. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with Yuha Ka'akinen, former CEO and senior advisor of the Y Foundation in Finland, and Kenna Stormo Gibson, director of housing policy at the Hawaii Budget and Policy Center. The two first met this summer, where 55 nations gathered to learn about different working models to and homelessness. Yuha, you were the CEO of Y Foundation, large Finnish NGO providing housing for homeless people, social housing. You handle a portfolio of over 18,000 flats, apartments. Apartments, yes. Your roots are in public administration in the city of Helsinki, national leader. You've been working to really end long-term homelessness. What is that message that you are sharing? The main message is that homelessness is not a law of nature. We can have a world without homelessness. There's a way how to end homelessness. Just think housing as a human right and then start to make what's necessary to end homelessness. And that's something that we have been trying to do in Finland for quite a long time. So it's the big difference if you manage homelessness, the phenomena some way, or if you are really trying to end it and that's what, what we are doing. Everybody has to have a safe place they can call home. That's the foundation for your living that makes easier to solve other issues if you have problems and contribute for the society also. It's a moral and ethical obligation for, for us and it has not been a political question in Finland for a very long time because all political parties are behind the idea that we should and we can end homelessness. There has been two phases. The, the first one was already in the 1980s when we started to build more affordable housing in Finland. But in 2008, we concentrated more on, on the chronic homelessness, long-term homeless people. And we made a systemic change, so we wanted to get rid of the temporary accommodation in shelters and hostels and replace it with permanent housing the basic thing for us is that everybody has their own rental contract. You have your own own key to your own home, and then you can get support if that's needed. These are the only elements that are actually needed. When you get out of homelessness, it's not only about housing, it's also the support is a vitally important element also. You are a proponent of housing first. But you were also saying we have to take away temporary housing. When you take away the temporary housing, what came in its space and how did you provide that? Well, it's a, it was a very comprehensive plan, a national strategy. And it meant that some of the former hostels were renovated physically so that they are now permanent housing. Everybody has their own home, in, independent apartment in those buildings. But when we started this renovation, it meant that we provided permanent housing in different places, like in, in scattered individual apartments. But our experience has been that temporary accommodation creates a kind of culture of homelessness, and, and it's, it's not even a cost-effective way to handle homelessness, because you could use the same money that you use for temporary accommodation in a more, more sustainable way in providing permanent housing. So, Kenna, you were there at the conference. What was it about what was working in Finland that really stood out for you? What stood out for me was that it's a government-wide systemic approach 
we actually visited one of those shelters that was converted to permanent housing, and we got to walk there, Alpicatu. I think it used to be a shelter for like 200-something people, and then they converted it into 80 individual units with the staff there to really support people. And so to actually see it with their own eyes that this is, if the government from the state to the cities and counties, if they get together. And so that's been a key part of Finland is just the collaboration and cooperation between different levels of government and the emphasis on saying, hey, if we need resources, we'll find the resources. And actually, a lot of what Finland is doing, we do here in Hawaii, but on a small scale. Counties are doing this project by project, right? Different people have really grabbed onto this concept, but we're just not all rowing together in the same canoe. Mm. And so this was an election year where everybody was up for election. So we are seeing new people coming in, and I think this is an opportunity where if we take this system-wide approach as opposed to one thing here, one thing there, we really can get to where Finland is. We need to kind of bump it up and have a a state and a county-wide strategy. So just as an example, you know, these Ohana zones, there have been some very successful ones where essentially the state put in some money and then the county put in some land, right? And they moved people from being in tents to being in nothing particularly fancy, but basically a version of mobile homes, Mm. right? right? And now those folks are able to access their own kitchen and bathroom for about $500 a month. And we saw a wonderful project like that in Kauai. There's some other projects on Big Island. The issue is we haven't done it at scale, Hmm. right? And we haven't formalized the process. So in Finland, they have a more formal process where the state puts in some money and then the for infrastructure, right? And then the cities or or counties in exchange for some of that um, help, they agree to a certain percentage of affordable housing. And their goal right now is that any new development will have 50% truly affordable for their residents. Whereas here in Hawaii, our goals for new neighborhoods are 20%. And I would say at least half of that isn't affordable at the people that need it the most. So we have the right idea. We're just not doing it at the level and with the coordination that we need. Hmm. We're working in silos, but I think people boots on the ground inspired by stories coming out of Finland and other places that where it's working, they're getting it. What is it that you want to bring back to us so that we can also get behind us? I think um, what you see from Finland is if we can all get to a place where we realize that every person has value, every single person deserves to reach their potential, and that We don't have to be in a place where on your way to work every day you're seeing homeless encampments. We don't have to be in a place where we're stepping over people literally living on sidewalks. And I think we know on some level that that's not right, but we haven't adopted a systemic government approach. We do not have that. Um, and what Finland did was they, they, they had the data, they had the numbers to say this is what is working and we're going to do it at scale. So that's what we need to do. We need to say what is it that works? And instead of saying, oh, we can't or, oh, it's going to cost too much or, oh, no, we can. We can do it, but we have to do it systematically. It takes a while, but you know what? I think we're ready. I think people in this state are ready to say, you know what, we want to go in a different direction. We've been going down this direction of things getting worse every year for the past 30 years, and we collectively say enough is enough. If we collectively do that and we collectively get on the same page, so it doesn't matter who wins a particular council race, who wins a particular mayoral election, everybody just agrees enough is enough and we can do better. We can. We, we can do a lot of what Finland's doing. In the U.S., housing is a commodity. Right. Land is premium. Right. Hawaii, even more so. We're a small mass in comparison to Finland, but how do you see us overcoming that hurdle of land? Okay, well, you know, we have a lot of abandoned properties. We have a lot of empty lots. And you know what? Counties can buy those properties. They can buy those lots. In fact, they're doing it right now. There's a 
two-story walk-up on Alawai Canal that the city of Honolulu is in a process of acquiring through eminent domain. Mm-hmm. The county of Kauai, actually, there's a place that they said, this is perfect for affordable housing. We don't have any in this neighborhood. I believe it's up by Kilauea. And they, through eminent domain, are purchasing 20 acres of land. And I know in Finland, when they were starting this out and they needed success quickly, they bought properties off the private market. Yes, that's something my foundation has been doing for 30 years. We have been buying individual apartments from the private market and turned them into rental apartments for, for, for homeless persons. Oh, okay. But I think it's important to understand that this is not a money issue in the sense that keeping people in homelessness costs more than getting people out from homelessness. But we have done research that shows that when a former homeless person gets permanent apartment, even with support, the cost savings, even in the beginning, are around 15,000 euros or dollars per one year. And in the long term, those cost savings come become bigger. What I have seen in the news about North America especially is that people don't see the total cost of homelessness. There are costs in temporary accommodation. There are costs in looks like very much also in the police and justice system. So the total cost of homelessness is much bigger than taking care of and ending homelessness. Like you were saying, instead of some Mm. mental health issues being addressed, they're just being sent off to prison. Yeah, prisons are becoming a giant shelter for people that don't have housing. But also emergency room costs, those are huge. If you add up all the costs that we pay through all these other things because we're not providing homes, it costs way more. Not to mention the loss of human potential because there's so many people out there that when they are given a home and support, they actually are able to reach their potential. You know, And we see that here in Hawaii. We have lots of stories of people who are now in, in housing first apartments and they're going back to school, they're getting their degrees. They're saying, you know what, now that I have the support, I'm ready. But you can't do that if you have to worry about your safety 24 hours out on the, how are, how are you gonna go back to school when you're living on the sidewalk? You know, So housing first. Housing first. If you just do that, it is like like you have said, it's much cheaper overall. And the long-term benefits are really big. But it's one of those things where you have to put in the investment up front to get that return later. It's like taking out a student loan and saying, I'm going to take out that loan today because I'm going to get this benefit for the years and years to come that I have my education. And in a way, it's the same thing. you got to take that loan out now to mm-hmm. fix the problem now, to see all those long-term benefits. I feel like we're only like scratching the surface here, but you will still be in town on Saturday. Yes. So Yuha and our other experts from Finland, including two women from Samiland, to make the connection between indigenous voice and values and housing. So they're going to be Saturday at UH Manoa Campus Center. We still have some tickets available, so if people would like to get those, they can go to HiHack.org. That's H-I-H-A-C, Hawaii Housing Affordability Coalition.org. We have tickets available. This is this Saturday, 8.30 to 4.30. That's going to be your best opportunity to see them in public. Uh, and so we would we would love people to come out. Thank you. So we'll share that information on our website as well. Very quickly, you have any last final thoughts before we say goodbye? Well, I think that it's really a housing issue. You can't have housing first without having housing first. And I think that it's totally possible. What I have met the people here in Hawaii and their determination to change and do something with this. I'm totally confident that it's also possible in Hawaii. That was Juha Ka'akinen, former CEO of the Y Foundation in Finland, and the Hawaii Budget and Policy Center's Kenna Stormo-Gibson. They'll be part of a Housing Solutions Conference that kicks off tomorrow. We'll share links on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Island Community Health Center, providing medical, dental, and behavioral health care services island-wide. Learn more at hicommunityhealthcenter.org. Support for HPR comes from C.S. Woe & Sons, furnishing homes in Hawaii since 1909, featuring a design team offering personalized consultations to help bring dreams to life, online at cswoandsons.com. back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. A 100-acre nature preserve in Kalihi Valley has served as a place of healing for thousands of people. The group's leadership recently received national recognition. HPR's Jaina Omaya joins us with more. Good morning. Hi, Catherine. Good morning. Great to be here. Yes, and this preserve, I've been there. It's beautiful. It is beautiful, and um, it's called Ho'oulu Aina, and that basically means to grow the land and to grow because of the land. So like you mentioned, it's a hundred acres of land in the back of Kalihi Valley, and it's part of this nonprofit called Kokua Kalihi Valley Comprehensive Family Services. And so basically, um, kind of how all of this came about is in 2005, the nonprofit Kokua Kalihi Valley was granted a lease from the State Department of Land and Natural Resources to kind of care for and steward those hundred acres. And so that lease has since been extended. So Ho'oulu Aina, kind of being part of this community health center that is Kokua Kalihi Valley, you know, they really offer programs and services that help people heal holistically. For example, they do things like grow herbs at Ho'oulu Aina that can be used for traditional Hawaiian medicine. And some doctors, I've, I've learned, also kind of recommend like their patients to go there to kind of work on the land so they can kind of start their own healing processes. So it's therapy. Therapy it in is. the valley. <laughs> it is for sure. So I spoke to Puni Jackson and she's the director of Ho'oulu Aina and she recently re- received a, a leadership award from the National Association of State Foresters just recognizing all the work that they do in the valley and so I spoke with her at length about her organization and its community impact. I always feel like that healing uh, that is needed on the land is, is it's not like it's not like a prescription where you're just going to go to the pharmacy and get your Ina prescription and then you're done. Although we have beautiful stories of, of doctors who kind of prescribe people to come up here. It's just the beginning, the tiny seeds, you know, that are starting to grow and open. You know, at Ho'oulu Aina, they have thousands of people who volunteer to work on the land every year. And Puni actually mentioned that pre-COVID, they could easily hit a thousand people in a month. Wow. Even during COVID, they did continue some of their programs and services as well. So on top of working on the land, clearing invasive species, all that stuff, they offer programs about food production and really Aina-based education for youth and kind of like all ages from Keiki to Kupuna. Jackson says that they also have a robust kind of native birth program. So they even have pregnant moms. And so they're kind of learning about the land. And so their their babies are in their wombs, too. So there's all kinds of programs for all ages. And she really talked about kind of this power of community and connections. One thing that I often feel um, or witness is this growth in the sense of belonging. So even in just a few hours of being here, often people talk about their grandparents or their homelands in a way that is reminding or triggering or reopening connections that are powerful for sort of human healthiness. And I also talked to one of their other staff, Kanoa O'Connor. He's the Ho'oulu Aina's youth coordinator. And so he actually grew up down the road from Ho'oulu Aina. And he's kind of seen the area transform. You know, when he was younger, he mentioned that it was kind of maybe a rougher area. Like they didn't really go to that place. But he's really seen it kind of transform into kind of what it is now because of the work that they've been doing. The forest is our community too, so when we talk about community programs, it's like for the humans and for the trees and the rocks and the for, for all of those. And so I think that that's 
a big part of what we do is we can help the humans to remember that connection a lot of times. In addition to those community work days that I mentioned, Ho'oluaina also partners with these community groups. And so basically they kind of come regularly to work on the land and to help out. And so one of them is Honolulu Community College, which is, you know, in Kalihi. And I spoke to one of their Native Hawaiian counselors, Kahale Saito, and she's actually brought hundreds of students to Ho'oluaina over the past decade. And she's even brought her own keiki to volunteer to work on the land. So she says that, you know, some of her students come from kind of rough upbringings and backgrounds. So working on the land, feeling that connection, having a place they can call home is so important to them. And she also mentioned that some of her students have graduated and they actually went on to work at Ho'oluaina. Mm-hmm. So it's this great kind of partnership that they have with them. So we've been helping to clear some of the land and we've been able, you know, over the course of the last 10 years, we've been able to see our work, you know, and and see some of the the seedlings come out and puka through and, you know, taking the time to nurture spaces, nurture the spaces of our students, um, take care of them, nurture them, you know, so they too can be the the cause or the warriors of, of our own communities. You know, one of the last times that I was there, they had a dog that was kind of their mascot. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think his name was Tripod, and he'd lost a leg in a pig trap, and he was so resilient, his spirit. You'd see him on the trails with his one front leg and the two back legs, and it was just, you know, an amazing, amazing animal, an amazing transformation and healing. It was just really neat to see that valley. It's very special. Yeah, it seems like the healing kind of has an effect on everyone, you know, the nature, the trees, tripod, and the humans, right, that work on the land. So some exciting things coming up for Ho'oluaina. They have a new project they're working on. It's called like a maker's space. And they basically want to kind of repurpose all the invasive species that they clear from the forest. So they plan to have things like a sawmill, wood carving, just these spaces dedicated for community members to actually make products and goods out of these invasives. And of course, like I mentioned before, they always have their weekly community and their Aloha Aina work days. Okay, something to look forward to. But thank you so much, Jaina. Thank you, Catherine. We've been talking to Jaina Omai. Look for her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. it for us today. Up tomorrow, we talk about climate change as the United Nations COP27 conference wraps up. Got a climate change story to share? What are you doing to reduce your carbon footprint? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can connect with us on Facebook too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow, won't you, for more of the conversation. (music) 